Hello, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley, back with you again for another ShareCast episode. You know, many of us in our lives come upon challenges that seem, you know, just too big or too great for us to overcome. You know, I find that success stories are best when we get to hear the challenges of our hero and how they overcame these challenges, sometimes, you know, against incredible odds to succeed. And through determination, hard work, support of their teens and loved ones, they triumph. Well, today's guest, Dr. Michael Sussman, is a tremendous aesthetic and restorative dentist that shares with us two major challenges that he has met head on. One professionally, that was his drive to become a highly skilled cosmetic dentist when he had virtually no experience in the cosmetic dental arena. And his second, which is absolutely more significant, it's a personal drama, it's his fight against an HPV throat cancer that started back in 2018. This is a conversation that you just don't want to miss. So here I am with Dr. Michael Sussman. Well, hello, dental online trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley, back with you again for another episode of our DOT ShareCast. Today, I'm really excited to spend some time with my friend and my guest, uh, Dr. Michael Sussman. For those of you that have involved in the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, and for those of you who are not, you know who you are, shame on you, you should join. It's an awesome organization. Anyhow, you should recognize Mike's name. Uh, That's because, for many reasons, Mike, number one, is an accredited fellow of the AACD. He was one of the the early fellows in the organization, and he has served as a chair of accreditation uh, from 2001 to 2004. In fact, Mike was sort of like my leader of the head when I served my first role as an examiner for accreditation. And I want to talk about accreditation for sure, because the process that the AACD has created is just phenomenal. It's it's incredibly fair and it's just an incredible process. So I want to talk about that because I think it's incredible. Mike is also a former president of the AACD back in 2009-2010. If you don't know Mike from the AACD and you're a part of the COIS educational program, you know him from there because he's been part of the COIS group for 15 years or so, I think. Yeah. Clinical instructor, adjunct faculty, and he has uh, served on their advisory board. He served on that for, for multiple years. Mike is a member of a bunch of awesome dental organizations, um, including the American Academy of Restorative Dentistry. It's a place where I've gotten to, uh, I've been fortunate to work side by side with Mike on a bunch of committees. He's also a member of the ultra-exclusive American Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry. That's sort of the who's who of cosmetic and aesthetic dentistry around the world. Mike served as associate editor for functional aesthetics and restorative dentistry, section editor for compendium, um, continuing education dentistry. And he's been on and sat on numerous editorial boards, including compendium, inside dentistry, practical procedures and aesthetic dentistry, one of my favorite magazines or journals from the day, and the Journal of Cosmetic Dentistry. Now, beyond all these accolades, Mike's a Cornhusker. As most of you know, or any of you who have been listening to my Sharecast, you know I'm a Wolverine. I went to Michigan and I'm very proud. I'm very proud and boastful Wolverine as most of us are. And yeah, we're quite arrogant about our our Michigan. Even even though we have little to be arrogant about as our football team has not been awesome until last year, we had a good year. But let's see. So Mike graduated from University of Nebraska in 1981, correct? That is correct. General school? And he has gone on and then he's in private practice in his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. One of the additional reasons I want to talk to Mike today, um, unfortunately, uh, Mike has recently um, and continues to battle uh, throat cancer. 
you might notice light hoarseness in Mike's voice, though it's way improved from when I just saw him in February. It's getting better and better and stronger and stronger. So I want to talk about sort of the journey he's been on and sure. what's what it's been like being on the other side, uh, you know, from the clinician who might be diagnosing and, and managing patients to becoming the patient. I want to talk about that. So first of all, Mike, thanks for joining us. I can't thank you enough for spending your time and sharing with us about your, your journey. And welcome, my friend, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Dennis. I rarely, if at all, like talking about myself, but if looking at my trials and tribulations could be a benefit to some of the younger dentists out there. I'm all for being vulnerable today. Well, I think, Mike, I, for those who, who aren't familiar with Mike, he's he's like the best dentist you've never heard of because, like you said, you don't like talking about yourself, so you're not going to be the person out there on Instagram promoting yourself, and you're not singing your praises. You Typically, when I hear you, you're singing everyone else's praises, but it's you're sort of old school. You are you are Midwestern, I'd say, in your in your sort of approach. You um, put others first, right? And which is I something guess. that I something that appeals to me and my sensibilities, and it's um, it's great. So, Mike, one one of the things when I started this cast, I wanted young dentists and dentists who are on their journeys to understand that all the things that we've been able to do and the organizations we've been able to be part of, it's achievable for everybody. And I used to think when I was a young dentist, when I'd look at people like Pete Dawson and John Coyce and Frank Spear and so many other, the, the dignitaries of dentistry, I thought that they were just born with the the golden dental drill that was sure. in their crib when they were babies, that they were giving, they were just born with a skill set. And as I've been doing this year cast and talking to people like Amanda C and Newton Fall and so many others, it's so interesting that they, they're, they're like everyone else. And it's interesting to hear their, their travels or journeys into dentistry. So that's where I want to start out first is like, why are you a dentist? How did that all happen? Ooh, let's see. You know, I came from my, my family were truck gardeners. They raised vegetables for a living. We'd sell them to local grocery stores, uh, to a local wholesale fruit and vegetable district, and out of a stand in our backyard. So nobody had been to higher education in my family. So when I had the opportunity to do so, that was a new thing. Luckily, I got kind of diverted to a state college where I could figure this higher education thing out. At that time, I was into music just as much as I was into science. So I kind of thought that I was going to pursue music as a career. And one day I'm getting my teeth cleaned and I thought, you know, this gig, this dental hygiene thing looks like it could be a great part-time gig where I could go to the coast, uh, work on my craft, and then have a backup job to put food on the table. But I had a friend of mine who was a much better player than I was head to New York. And I saw the difficulty he was having, you know, trying to make ends meet and establish a music career. And I quickly uh, abandoned that idea and decided to apply to dental school rather than to dental hygiene school. I have a Luckily, couple questions. First of all, I've never heard the term truck gardener before. So this is the first time I've heard this. So yeah. don't, your, your parents were truck gardeners. So I'm assuming you, you have your little farm and then you sell, sell produce on the back of a truck? About a hundred acres. Oh, so you had a real farm. Yeah. You can grow a heck of a lot of vegetables on a hundred acres. Everything from asparagus to zucchini and everything in between about a dozen different types of squash. 
four different types of potatoes. Uh, you know, it was a heck of a load of work. Truck gardener, what does that mean, truck gardener? Uh, you know, it was a lot of manual labor. We okay. put things on the truck and, uh, you know, took them up to the shed, washed things out, got them ready to go, trucked them down to the wholesale fruit and vegetable district. And at times we did park on a street corner and sell vegetables off the back of our truck. And you were, I, I have to assume, you were there with your parents. You have siblings? Uh, one younger sister. And so you were out there. I mean, you know, my, my dad was one of 14 kids. He was a, a family of farmers. And so they birthed a lot of kids because they needed a lot of farm hands. So my dad hated doing gardening or any sort of lawn work because of his early years as a kid being out there, you know, doing the farming business stuff. So I'm assuming you were out there doing the farming. Yes. Oh, yeah. Six and a half days a week. I started working when I was nine for an hourly wage of a dime an hour. And, uh, you know, worked at that. And I'd be crawling in the dirt, pulling weeds and planes would be flying overhead. And I remember thinking, wow, there's a whole nother world out there, you know. And so I was able to stay in school. I enjoyed school and education a lot. And I stayed in school, got into dental school, uh, graduated in 1981. And uh, the first 15 years were all about survival. You know, I started a practice from scratch and uh, just trying to make ends meet and uh, make things happen. Probably the most critical thing in those 15 years is that when PPOs first originated, it was 1980. 485. Our big insurance company in town was Mutual of Omaha. And they told us dentists that yes, they were going to be a PPO and that yes, you better sign to join on. And yes, you would get 20%, 30% less of your profit margin. And you'd be happy about it. So I went to an emergency dental meeting and there were about five dentists that spoke at that meeting. And they were fire and brimstone speeches about, you know, hell no, we're not going to do this. And I thought, you know, I'm from an independent mindset as well. Heck no, I'm not going to do that. And then the day came where the list was published in the paper. And um, I recognized very early that my name and those of the five dentists that spoke were the only ones not on the list. Then I realized that the five dentists who spoke were either retired or going to retire, and that I was the only young person who wasn't on the <laughs> list. And I thought, oh my God, I've just killed my career. I haven't even started yet. Right. And uh, sure enough, uh, calls started coming in, transfer records and such, but we survived it. And how, how um, long were you in how long were you in practice when that uh, when that happened? About four or five years. And, and you, were, you were back in the community that you had um, grown up in? Correct. Did you start a practice from scratch or did you join a practice or take acquire a practice? What was your... I started from scratch. So our patient base wasn't that large anyway. But what it did for us is after those people transferred, some of them came back after they realized what they were missing. But the patients who remained with us actually were able to articulate their appreciation for us to like-minded people that they referred to our practice. So we were getting 
patient referrals that were really seeking our type of care, which was fee-for-service, do the best that we possibly could to take care of them. And they appreciated that. And that's how our practice grew. And we became fee-for-service totally at that time, part by choice, part by happenstance, and have remained that way for 41 years now. Mike, let me ask you a question. So uh, I grew up with humble beginnings also, first generation to go to, to college and all. One of the challenges I had, and maybe still have, I'm not sure, the struggle with coming from humble backgrounds and then in like a fee-for-service pra- um, practice where you are, I'm quoting fees that my parents could have never, ever been able to afford to do the type of dentistry that that I wanted to do. Did you struggle with that at all coming from? Oh, man, big time. That's a very emotional issue. How'd you you get over that? Two things I'll talk about is, number one, if my staff has anybody from my way back past call the office to want to come in, they know that they're going to encounter issues economically or no-shows or whatever. It's just not a population who is uh, responsible with their dental appointments. So, But the main morality thing you're talking about is we want to help everybody. And we realized that our fee schedule, in order to provide the optimum dentistry that we wanted to provide, was something that the average person couldn't do. Right, And therefore, we were narrowing our patient population to a group of people like my staff wouldn't be able to refer their friends to us because we were becoming so exclusive. And it was really difficult on us to admit that that's where we were going. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line was that I had this tremendous staff. We were continuing education nerds. We tried to take on everything our science had to offer. And I thought, you know, on the other side of things, I would be restricting this genesis and this dynamic of being able to reach their full potential if we did not go all in. And just we had to call it as it was. We were a dental office that was probably easier for people of means to go to. Mm-hmm. However, that's not all of our patient population. You know, sure. we have some people that really appreciate us. We try to help them out wherever we can. And we try to provide the same service for them that we would with any of our patients, uh, but they have lesser means. But yeah. it was tough to come to that type of recognition and admit that we were kind of exclusive. I had a, a important conversation in my life. Gosh, this is twenty some years ago with a guy you know, Brian Vense, sure. dentist in Chicago area. Dennis uh, Brian's just a tremendous dentist. Brian also from humble backgrounds, and we were having this conversation. And Brian's a real, real thoughtful thinker. And he said, "You know, Dennis, um, when you go on vacation, you get to choose if you want to stay in a Holiday Inn or if you want to stay at a Four Seasons." He said, if there was only holiday inns, would it be fair to people who could afford the luxury of a Four Seasons that they could only stay in in a holiday inn? Wouldn't it be more fair for people who can afford to have extras, have luxury, have whatever, and they can afford it and they value it, that they, they can choose that? 
And for those who maybe they have the, the money to do it, but they don't value it, they can still choose to go to a Holiday Inn. They can still choose to have you know alternative options. And so he really influenced me that what I'm doing is availing my my skill set. Learning first, you have to learn. You have to do be able to do it. Right. And you avail yourself to those who value it. And like you said, some of them, you know, the, the cash isn't such an issue, but for some patients, it is an issue. And like you said, we have to work with those patients to help them and they have to make some sacrifices. And it but, takes that fee structure to support all that CE, all right. of that travel, all of that, those extras that you're putting into it. So it's a certain business model that, you know, needs all those parts in order to sustain. Yeah. And I think it's difficult for patients who, and you know, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, dentistry so often looked at as a commodity, right? A crown's a crown, right? How I many patients call in? I mean, we get every week patients, how much, you know, what do you charge for a crown? What do you charge for a veneer? And like you said, the amount of time and energy and finances you put into continuing education to improve your skill set, even at where we are in our practice, we're still going to continuing education. We're still going to meetings. We're still learning, trying to get better. There, that has to be part of the model on supporting the higher higher end dentistry, unfortunately. But that's the reality, right? When you're making those and then also also the soft skills too, being able to articulate to uh, prospective patients the value of what you're doing and how it value, how it's a value for that particular patient in the long run to uh, pay that type of optimum fee for that type of dentistry. You have to be able to be able to talk to people. You have to be authentic. You have to be genuine and let the cards fall where they may, but give well, people the information. You have you to know, be I able to articulate it. For sure. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges for me was as I was learning to do the dentistry and um, I was highly influenced by Frank Spear. And I started seeing Frank when I was a young dentist and I started taking all sorts of laboratory hands-on courses. And the reality is I was, I was picking up my skill set, but I, <laughs> I was really poor at communicating with patients. And it was really frustrating. And I hear this from a lot of young dentists who are learning skills, but they're not able to apply the skills to bring them to the practice. And that's where you talk about the soft skills. So how did you learn to be able to talk to patients and be able to help them understand what you would be able to give the care for them? Well, I started uh, with, there was a thing called dental boot camp back in the day. Walter, Walter Haley. Haley. Walter Haley. Ackley, Jolene, Steve Anderson. Yeah. And uh, we dove into that, you know, and shed all the baggage as to, uh, you know, all the baggage us dentists carry that inhibits our communication techniques in discussing things with patients. And I dove into it enough to take my staff down to wherever it was in Texas right. where Walter was located. But that put us all on the same page. And the critical thing about that was, is you learn different personality types of different people. And instead of always broadcasting your communications in a manner that's comfortable to you, the dentist, that is, right. instead, you learn to assess the personality traits of the person you're speaking with, what's important to them. And therefore, you change your communication and your articulations so that it is in a mode that's most beneficial for the recipient hearing your message. And uh, 
that's the critical thing we heard out of that. The additional thing was that my staff took uh, the personality profiles as well, so that we got to learn about each other, learn about what's made us tick and what didn't. So that, you know, if we were the dominant or the influencer type or the steady or the conscientious, in other words, the DISC test, we kind of knew how our fellow staff member operated. And that helped us with staff camaraderie and continuity. If I had a message for younger dentists out there, it would be that if you can recognize people on your staff or recruit people on your staff that you can convince to change their job into a career, it will benefit you greatly. That's been the secret to our success. Uh, I have the great honor of working with people and I had the great honor of purchasing five 25-year watch commendations. Wow. Uh, a lot of those people, four of them I still work with, and I have others that are a few years less. But keeping your staff together and not having to rehire and retrain and all that stuff. We all got on the bus together. We all decided where we are headed. We decided which seats best fit each particular person and fit their skill set. And we drove together. And uh, it was the key to our success. Oh, that's wonderful. And especially in this time with COVID, and we've, we've gone through some issues with hiring and restaffing and stuff. And I think those are, um, I think your words are really right straight on. Um, you know, getting back to Walter Haley, uh, there are a couple of things I that we took out of that. First of all, for the DISC assessment, if you guys want to learn more about this, um, check out one of our previous episodes with Juri Gottlieb. She's a consultant that we work with, and she has worked a lot with our team on understanding different personality styles. So it isn't that one style is right or wrong. It's just that, as Mike was saying, very often when we're sitting down with a patient or we're talking with another person, a staff member or a team member, for instance, we t- we tend to look at the world through our eyes, our personality style. And if we can understand the personality style of the, of the patient, this is so important. If you have a patient that is what we, in the DISC style would be a C, someone who's very conscientious, someone who would be sort of engineer, accounting, someone who needs to know all the numbers, someone who needs it all laid out point by point by point. You need to have a different conversation than someone who would be, say, a D in the in the DIS system, someone like myself, or I just want to know the big picture. Just tell me what I got to do. How many appointments you're going to need me for? Just get to the end. Uh, I'm I'm not good with long I gotta, stories. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And so it's important that when we're talking to patients, we understand their style so that I'm not sitting down with a C and just sort of giving them a, just a brief overview. They're, they're going to, they're not going to follow through with treatment. They need details and we need to schedule appropriately for that. So if I have a consult and they're identified as a C from our admin team up front, they say, this is someone who's a C, they're going to need your time. We're going to have more time in our consult. If it's a D they're like, Dr. Hartley, just let them know what they need to have done. And they're, they're all in. So, and that's also important with our team members. So people's feelings don't get hurt. Yep. And so we have a lot of S's in dentistry. These are service people and they can tend to be more sensitive. So we have to be very careful, especially for someone like myself, who's very straightforward. I have to be cautious on how I'm communicating with my staff because they like to tell a long story. And Dennis Hartley has a hard time listening to long stories, despite how much I talk here. So I think that DISC stuff is critical. The other thing that I got from Walter, you may remember this is he said, patients dial into WIIFM. Do you remember that? I'll never forget this. No, I tell I this to my remember. staff all the time. 
what's in it for me? Uh-huh. What's in it for me? And so benefits, right? And so what are the benefits? What's in it for them? And that's something I always get back to. So it's interesting. They were they were profound in my in my learning also. I brought my team. They had done a, a boot camp in Chicago. We spent three days, stayed overnight at the hotel. It was it was profound for me as a young dentist. I did it when I was in my old practice before I joined with Mopper. And it was really profound for my understanding of how people think and how I need to think differently to be successful as a dentist. Uh, it was, that's interesting so, that you had gone through the same path. So- this was so critical. I mentioned the first 15 years were survival. In 1996, I went to my first day ACD meeting. I'd been going to ADA meetings during that time, and everybody's just moping around, thinking about woe is me. Insurance uh, plans. I go to my first day ACD meeting, and people are like, you know, having fun and saying how great dentistry is. Right. And they're enjoying it. I'm like, oh my God. I got to sign up for accreditation, you know, and I, but I've only done one bonded porcelain restoration in my career up to oh, that no point. Kidding. I was, oh, I was really? amalgams and PFMs. Really? And so I wrote a letter to my staff saying, you know, I'm going to go on this journey and I need you with me. But if you don't want to come with me, I understand we'll find you a job, but, you know, tell me whether you're on with this or not. They then decided they were in the journey. They were going to do accreditation with me, which was incredibly important because in my geographical area at the time, it was amalgams and PFMs. Right. Once people heard about what we were doing with aesthetic dentistry, I lost friendships. And so we were needing to articulate our position as to what we were doing and why as we pursued accreditation. And wow, my staff just went in and it was so much fun for us to attack this and uh, get it all done. And I accepted the accreditation certificate on our behalf uh, in 1999. That's so awesome. Tell me about, I think this is great. And I've heard this from so many dentists on how their team has been so supportive and influential and critical to their accreditation process. So in what way was the team helping you through this, this process? I haven't taken pictures in 35 years. Once I learned how to take pictures, I saw the person on my staff that was always bringing family photos to work. Uh, I taught her how to take pictures and haven't taken a picture since. Hmm. All of us kind of delegated into these little categories. Do we have dental assistants? Yes, we do. But it's dental assistants slash inventory manager, dental assistants slash dental laboratory liaison, dental assistants slash AV manager. We all recognize these little parts that we had to play for one another in order to get the team across the finish line. That's awesome. What a great story. So you you got accredited. And then uh, what year did you get your fellowship? Uh, you know, I got accredited. And it was a little turbulent. At that time, accreditation had its worst. It was thought to be uh, not what you knew, but who you knew, because you presented the cases in person and it didn't have a good reputation. I had two exam teams examine me differently and different criteria that they failed me on. So I had the benefit of knowing what it's like to get a failure letter, but I persevered due to the help of Larry Adelson, who was chair of accreditation at that time. But due to my intense involvement, 
I became accredited in 1999. I became on the accreditation committee in 2000, and I became chair of accreditation in 2001. Wow. And at that time, because of the bad perception, the Board of Governors had revamped all of accreditation, turned it into as an objective, as a testing procedure as they possibly could with uh, a written exam with five cases that you'd need to send in, but they were going to be anonymously judged, not with you standing there. Once you got done with that, you needed an oral examination. The only problem was none of those things were in place. So when I assumed the chair position, it was literally me and Lisa Weber, who was accreditation manager at that time for the ACD. We put the accreditation system into place. And then after meeting with some psychometric testing analysts, talk about a wild weekend, you meet with psychometric (laughs) testing analysts. It is like, oh my God, watch it paint dry. But uh, after doing that, I had to uh, write the oral exam. It has changed a little bit, I think, over the years. But for the most part, things are still as we adopted them. Uh, Accreditation became very successful. It's a great journey. It's a great process to test oneself because unless you are forced to do it the right way, at least once or twice, you don't know what you're capable of. And once you achieve that perfect case, that becomes your benchmark. That becomes where you set the bar and you're able to do it over and over again, but you don't know where that bar is set unless you do it the first time. I want to talk about the accreditation process for just a bit. And for those who who are accredited, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the behind the scenes. And for those who haven't gone through the process and are curious, essentially you have to do five different case types. One is six or more indirect anterior restorations, maxillary arch, so from six to 11 or beyond. Second is, um, in no no particular order, six or more direct resin veneers. So again, six to 11 or beyond. That'd be case type type five. One or two indirect restorations for in the aesthetic zone. So that could be a veneer or crown on the lateral or central or, or whatever. A tooth replacement that could be with either an implant or a bridge, and that's for the aesthetic zone. And the last case is a either a class four or diastema closure direct composite technique. So that's uh, typically sort of like the entry case that most people will send in. A critical thing to learn because you got to learn how to hide the crack. Yep, hide the hide fracture the, line. Hide the fracture and, line and and about contours, contours you know, and polish. Drought, yeah. And so I'll tell you my story. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Mike. So I was dubious. I was dubious of the AACD. I'd gone to a number of meetings and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. Really nice people, great energy, but the whole accreditation process, as you had described, was a little suspicious. And so I sent in my first case, I sent in, I didn't like it. And I thought it was a fail for a number of reasons, but I, I sent it in hoping it would fail because I saw all sorts of faults with it. And I sent it in and sure enough, it came back and it failed. And I'm like, bravo. And then there was all sorts of critiques and it was all the stuff that I had seen and more. They could see the finish line. They could see there was asymmetry on, or the contour, uh, my line angles weren't appropriate. There was a number of things that were wrong that I saw. And I'm like, okay, game on. This is fair. This was, if they had passed it, I wouldn't have gone through accreditation because there was too many flaws And I want to be part of an organization that was really trying to achieve at a high level. 
Now, I remember you as being a little bit dispirited by the time I entered into your accreditation journey. Well, I think part of it was just the time to to get the cases in, right? Because it takes True. time. I was shooting back in the days. Um, I had started cases with slide film and didn't finish my journey. And then all of a sudden we're into digital. And my first camera would shoot in JPEG or RAW. But the memory memory cards were so small that you could only shoot like a half a dozen raw images before your memory card was filled up. So I was shooting cases in JPEG, which are not acceptable. They got to be in raw format. Right. So it wasn't until I had a camera where I could shoot in JPEG and raw and actually had memory cards that were big enough that I started to assemble my cases. So a lot of it was sort of just the timing when I was going through it. Also, you know, running a practice, all the things that all of us are sort of uh, managing when we're going through the process. And the only reason I bring it up is because that's not unusual. The accreditation journey has its hills and valleys. And being able to traverse those hills and valleys and just keep your eyes to the horizon and what you need to do. And what I found as chair of accreditation is those people that became successful were those people that said, you know, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to get there. Those that found an excuse or looked for an exit ramp could do so, but you can become successful and you could be somebody as inexperienced as myself who had only done one indirect porcelain bonded restoration prior to entering the process and you can be successful, but it takes some work. It does. And and I think one of the great things about the ACD, among many things, is that they have great mentorship. So if you're going to go through the ACD, pro, uh, the accreditation process, you can be assigned a mentor, uh, someone who's gone through the accreditation process and will review your cases with you and, yep. you know, and make sure that you're on track. So you understand where, where the challenges are in the cases you're doing. Is it an acceptable case? Is this a case you should be using? And walk you through it. So that's sort of the, the front end of things, but I want to talk a little bit about the back end because I found this fascinating when I became fortunate enough to be in the accreditation process as a, an examiner. It is the fairest, most heartfelt, genuine grading that I've, that I've ever experienced. So I'll, I'll sort of paint the picture for you. So you're in the basement at the AACD in Madison, their headquarters. Are there five of us or six of us at the table? Because you got the recorder. Five. Yeah, there's five. And you have the the chair or the lead, which in my case was Mike for the first one I did. And then essentially there's two projectors that are going, the 12 images that you need for the AACD, the before and the after. Each case is not only, it's, it is not by the person's name, it's not by their membership number, which could be indicative of how long they've been in the AACD, which could make some examiners feel like, hey, let's get this guy passed, he's been in forever. It is a random random code, so it could be WCZ247, and it's only identified by what case type it is. And so essentially, the leader will say, let's start out with this, or someone will pick out a random number, and they'll start the cases. I think it's, it's 60 seconds for, or how long is it each slide shown for for the first run through? Oh, gosh. First run through, it's like thirty seconds. It's not or? very long. It's just, it's just 10 seconds or 15 
So you get to see each slide, 12 series of slides, and then re repeat. Now, during this time, there's absolutely no speaking at all. It is complete silence. Every examiner has a scorecard. And so then the only, only talking that can be done is if you're asking to go back and see a specific slide, or if you need a um, correction to the slide, let's say it, it needs to be brightened or it's too bright and you need to um, get it a global, a global yeah. edit, global edit. And that's all you can ask for. And everyone sits in silence and everyone does their scorecard. And the, the uh, scoring is minus two for a minor defect, minus four for a major defect, and minus eight if it is a catastrophic defect. And look at everything from tissue health to uh, midline angulation to embrasures to symmetry to contour to polish. There's a lot. And when we finish, uh, you pass your uh, your scorecards to the what's uh, what's that? Person? The recorder. The recorder. Yeah. The lights are turned on. The recorder says this is uh, what the grade it was three and what it's uh, eight points or less under eight points to get um, to pass. Yep. And the recorder then reads off what happened. What my experience has been, and the several I've been able to be part of, is the examiners want people to pass. They're looking for success. And so we celebrate success. And when there's cases that aren't passable, you know, they, they just haven't met that, um, that accreditation level, then there's time spent to give advice to the participant. Hey, this is what we saw. This would be a good case. Maybe you could redo this, but these are the issues that we saw. We can see these margins. We saw this inflammation, blah, blah, blah. Or it may even be, look, this was just not a good case for this. You know, there's, you had too many things to overcome for this case to be successful. So I think, uh, Mike, I think what you guys have done with this system is just incredible. And maybe you can talk a little bit more and fill in the blanks where I left, left out. No, I think you did a great job encapsulating it. It's a good thing. The ACD meeting provides a lot of uh, good educational experiences as well. You know, that happened in, that was the early part of things. And uh, the thing that it did for me as well, I knew my local lab person wasn't going to be able to make accreditation-worthy things. So I looked up this guy by the name of Lee Culp, mm -hmm. and I was going to take my lab person and pay for him to go to learn from Lee. And so I called Lee Culp's lab, and here's this guy from Nebraska calling, and all of a sudden, Lee Culp's on the phone. And I'm like, introduced myself and said, yeah, I'm wanting to send my lab person to you and things like that. And he just casually kind of said, well, if you're ever in Las Vegas, you know, drop on by, you know, I'll show you around. And I said, well, sir, if you're serious about that invitation, how about this Friday? It was like Tuesday. <laughs> and uh, all I heard was silence on the other end as he contemplated that, oh, my God, somebody took me up on that invite. Anyway, I went down there, showed him my slides. Lee taught me how to communicate with a lab technician in a particular way so that we could communicate well. And then I had the benefits of his beautiful artistry. Beautiful. And Lee Culp was my first big influence in my life, showing me what we could do, not only with aesthetic dentistry, but because he's Dawson trained and mm -hmm. just as much about function as he is aesthetics. It was all about doing comprehensive dentistry. Yeah. His work is still some of the finest work I have in my patient's mouths. His, uh, if you haven't seen Lee Culp, his, his artistry is phenomenal. He does such a beautiful job and still is out there doing it. He's still doing great stuff.
he took me into the educational and speaking part of dentistry as well. Uh, we first spoke, he took me down to the Fifth District Dental Society of Kansas, where I spoke. We had our carousels of slides and you know our clickers there in the back and uh, did our lecture. And about two weeks later, he called me and he said, you know, um, that organization, the American Equilibration Society? I go, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. They they bring their speakers back and really grill them. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he goes, well, I was wondering if you'd want to speak there with me sometime. And I'm like, uh, okay, because I was going to charge forward. I go, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, well, and I go, well, when is that? And he goes, well, that's the issue. He said, it's next week. And I said, he goes, but we'll just do what we did at the Fifth District Dental Society of Kansas. Oh, that's too funny. And so um, I said, well, I have patience. I can't make it. So I didn't know anything about the Equilibration Society. I do my patience, jump on a plane, make it to the presidential reception. And I'm walking around and I'm seeing Peter Dawson, you know, all these temporomandibular joint people and occlusion people, right. Parker Mayhem. And different people, and I'm thinking, all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not doing a lecture on aesthetics tomorrow. I'm doing a lecture on occlusion in the joint to these people. I never slept a wink that night. Stayed <laughs> up the entire night, did some push-ups and sit-ups, and looked at the thing. And that was in the days where you still had carousels in the back of the room. So we had clickers up there, and then, but we had a computer that had a PowerPoint presentation for our graphics that we were trying to convey in a verbal sense in the middle. So we're running all this stuff. And we did our lecture, and I was very proud of it. It was 2001, because prior to that time, you had your aesthetic camps, yep. and you had your functional camps, yep. and they did not like each other at all. They did not play they nicely together. They were eating each other. They were throwing all sorts of insults back and forth. Absolutely true. All of a sudden, uh, Lee and I go into the belly of the beast at the Equilibration Society, and we were well-recepted. And all of a sudden, wow, that was a big deal for the starting of melding between the functional camps and the aesthetic arenas. Mm -hmm. uh, people realize that it's all about dentistry and you got to do both things right. in order to really do the best we could. I kept on, uh, you know, Dr. Dawson was a great mentor. I took Mark Piper's temporomandibular joint courses. I ended up teaching with Pete 2004 to 2007. Mind you, all of a sudden, my practice is becoming aesthetic in nature. Right. So I got people coming in with destruction on their front teeth. And Pete's thing with traditional nathology, it was based upon the apex of force theory, meaning that the condyle was centered inside the fossa. We didn't have CBCTs back right. then. And also, he had the neutral zone in front, whereby yep. the anterior teeth were going to position themselves and that they would never touch when somebody was in function or eating. To Pete's defense, Pete did not practice at a time when uh, there was four on the floor ortho Great. with my cuspids being extracted and anterior teeth being pulled back. He did not practice at a time when 
parents wanted their child's orthodontics done before the sophomore prom, and then they would experience jaw growth and put the anterior teeth in opposition to one another. So all of a sudden, I'm seeing these people in my practice who have this anterior destruction, and I take a centric relation bite record, and they're touching first on their front teeth. Well, I go back down and I'm teaching with Pete and the hands-on things. And if somebody came up with the models in centric relation and they were touching on their anterior teeth, right, you would get kind of irate with them. Tell they them took a, they took a bad bite. They don't take a bite. bite record. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, there's there's something here. There's a dark hole that I'm missing with traditional nathology. So that's when I went up to see John Coy's Institute, John Coy's. Well, did you see John lecture before that? Or how is it that you- I had, I saw John at my first AECD meeting. He spoke in 1996 uh, on the perio restorative interface. Mm -hmm. And those metrics were something that set our practice above my entire locale. Yeah. Because I bought the VHS tape I learned those metrics between normal, high crest, low crest, learned how to control that for my restorative dentistry. Just tape, I wore out. So I have to pause you because for our listeners, um, a VHS tape is, <laughs> oh, no. is, is a recording that we used to put into a little box that was connected to our television and you would slide it in and it would uh, play back what we saw. So for, for those who are my daughter's age and younger, VHS tape is like a disc, only it's a tape wow. form that we used to listen, that we used to watch. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just had to make sure our young listeners know I'm that. I'm telling you folks, tape is. you get old <laughs> and you see the years go by and you know, it's all about looking forward and stuff like that. And I'm finally 41 years in practice. And now all of a sudden, the look back is so much more expansive than the look forward. Wow, to hear you describe VHS tapes <laughs> as a remnant of the past is really tough on me. Anyhow, I'm sorry to interrupt. So anyhow, you had seen John at the, uh, at the ACD. And yeah, you talked about the, the perio uh, restorative interface. But I went up to the center mainly to catch these dark holes that I had in my traditional nathologic right. training. Yep. And so John was teaching about functional occlusion, mm -hmm. not only how teeth come together when we're asking them to tap, but what happens to those dentitions and how do the upper and lower arches relate to one another when the patient's functioning, when they're chewing, and parafunctioning. And parafunctioning. And he was able to lay all that out for me. And I kind of thought initially that I was going to go up there and cherry pick. I would take the perio-restorative interface. I would take the occlusion course, the occlusion two. And all of a sudden, I realized that no, Koi Center had to be my dental home. That was going to be my place. And whether it's the Koi Center, whether it's Spear, whether it's Dawson, whether it's Panky, you got to find your home. Right. And that place that feels right for you. And you got to up your amount of money you spend on CE. You got to up your commitment to time with what you're going to spend on CE. And you got to go to somewhere where they have a comprehensive curriculum right. where everything's tied into place. Uh, there comes a time when the catching a day seminar in your hometown isn't going to do it. So I went up there and uh, chose it. And 
after a while, I decided not to cherry pick. I was going to take the entire curriculum. Ended that before I became president at the ACD. So I had my priorities scheduled out, did my ACD presidency, and then uh, became more involved with the COI Center as a mentor, as a clinical instructor, and then joined as an adjunct faculty member. I teach with John. Uh, I teach occlusion too with him. What's the COI Center besides teaching you the clinical information? What what else has the COI Center done for you professionally, personally? Well, there's tremendous people sitting in class. When you go to those in-person continuing education experiences, you learn just as much for the people around you as you do from the podium speakers. And you can gain great benefit by being associated with those types of people. So being a member of the tribe or the organization up at the Koi Center, there's always someone you can call that's smarter than you on a particular subject. And so that integration of support is very important as well. One of the questions I get frequently from young dentists in trying to decide where they want to go and do their advanced continued education. And so it comes down, like you said, we talk about Coy, Spear, Dawson, and Panky. Those are the four principles. How would you describe the correct mentality for going to Coy's? Like why, why Coy's versus Spear, Dawson, Panky? What do you, what do you think? I try to guide people. Like I, I tell people, if you like systems, maybe I'm wrong on this. And so maybe you might correct me. I say, if you like systems, Coyce is great. John's forte, I mean, besides he's just brilliant and he's a, an, an incredible communicator, he's great at systems. And if you're a systems person, it's going to fit into your mentality. I'm not a systems person. And I and so I was challenged from that type of format. Does that ring true or is there anything else? No, I think you're onto something there. It is about systems. I am a systems guy. I think it's an easy way to discuss things with my staff uh, because if something goes wrong or goes astray with us sometime, we're not talking about blaming an individual for coming short on something. Uh, We're talking about doing an autopsy on our systems. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we correct things when something goes astray in the office. So uh, I'm a systems person as well. I gravitated there because I don't know, I just felt it. And I think that's what you have to do, whether it be with Panky or because I know people at Panky, good folks, Dawson and Spear, and you got to find out where you're comfortable, but taking a few dabblings, one day courses or things like that, see how it feels to you. And then once you get a good feel for the various options, then you make a choice. You got to just dive in, right? And I think uh, I think very often, I think that's sort of the the sticking point is sometimes you just got to, you, you you test the waters and then you just make the dive, right? Because yeah. they're all great educational facilities. You're going to learn a ton from all of them. And I know many people have gone, well, I did Spear and Dawson. So like you, Dawson, I started out, well, I started with Spear, went over to Dawson. I felt that I needed some stuff that Spear offered that Dawson was not. And this is back when Frank was teaching out of his office. And so- I needed that. And I think you just have to find your path, but you got to dive in. You got to get into it. You can't just be on the outside looking in and just dipping your toes. It is a commitment. 
Yeah. Yep. It's a commitment. You, you've been so generous with your time, but I do want to finish up talking about your oral cancer diagnosis and stuff. And I was hoping <laughs> that you could sort of walk us through what happened when, how did you become aware and maybe walk us through what has been like? Uh, I'd be happy to kind of have to relive it in order to do that. So it's a little bit traumatic, but I'm getting better and better at it. So 2018, I'm at uh, Chicago Midwinter. I'm at an industry meeting. It was Friday morning. I go to lean on the counter on the tabletop, and I felt alone in my, just under the angle of my mandible on the left side. I freaked out. I can't even tell you what the rest of the meeting was about. I knew what it was. I knew what it was. But I quickly started thinking about all the things that it could be. And after that, I went back. I had two days to spend at a very prestigious organization with a bunch of prestigious colleagues that I said, hey, what do you think about this lump? And they were all, oh, you're looking in good shape. It's probably allergies or it's this ventilation in these hotels and things like that. And so I go, okay, that was starting to feed my denial. Mm-hmm. And I go back and I'm doing some physicians and some dentists as patients. I set them up and I say, hey, you know, tell me, what do you think about this lump over here? And they say, oh, you look in good shape. You know, it's probably allergies. It's, you know, it's that time of year, it's spring. February turns into March, March turns into April, April turns into May. Finally, I have this ENT that I set up. And I said, what do you think about this lump here? He goes, I don't like lumps or swollen lymph nodes in adults at all. You got to make it in to see me. I go, okay, I'll make an appointment. So he called back a couple of weeks later. He said, have you made an appointment yet? And I go, I said, yeah, yeah. Our schedules matched up in August. And he goes, no, no, no. You can't do it that way. And I go, well, okay, I'm headed to the airport. You know, I had this schedule. I had this this life. And I had this denial going on fully uh, that I said, when I get back from Seattle, I'll call your office on Monday. So I left. Unbeknownst to me, he called my staff back about five minutes later. And when I returned home Sunday evening, I was told I had an appointment at 7 a.m. on Monday morning. And... Um, to be there because the staff was being called early and they wouldn't like it if they were stood up. So I showed up at 7 a.m. It's a very simple test. If you got a swollen lymph node, it's a fine needle biopsy. You don't even feel it. They take out some cells, put it on a slide. You know, he does a little nasal throat scope, looked at things, was pretty noncommittal. And I forgot about it. Went back to work. Monday night, Tuesday, Tuesday night, phone rings. And it's uh, Dr. Ogren. And he says, Michael, I got to tell you, it's squamous cell carcinoma. And uh, I got goosebumps. Anybody that's received that type of phone call knows it's gravity. And so um, denial was all over with. And it was time to... uh, learn about the disease, and go ahead and treat it. And so uh, Dr. Ogren pointed me in a good direction. Uh, There happens to be a great head and neck throat clinic here in Omaha. And uh, I went there, met a surgeon. They send you for 
PETs, contrast CTs, all that to get an idea of where the cancer is located. For me, it was in uh, on my left lingual tonsil, something I couldn't feel, something I couldn't see, but it was operable. And I thought, you know, I want that thing out of my body. Sure. And so I had surgery, robotic surgery, TORS is what it's called, transorbital robotic surgery, where the surgeon sits over there at a console with his fingers and thimbles, and they have all these things going in your mouth, and they lop off a three centimeter by two centimeter by one centimeter tissue sample. Are you general anesthesia for this? Yes. Yeah. 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 The the pictures are horrendous. If you you saw the pictures of the device before you went in, I don't know whether I went in. Hmm. But then they did a radical modified neck dissection, took 36 lymph nodes, six of which had cancer cells in them. So I was then forced to make a decision. They go, oh, too bad. If you were five or under, you wouldn't have to have chemo. But as it is, you got to have chemo and radiation. Well, I looked at cisplatin and I realized that if I do cisplatin and I do radiation, my career is over. Talk to us about that example. I'm not cisplatin is a chemo therapeutic that delivers a lot of neuralgias to your digits and a lot of things. So the thing about my staging of my disease, it was stage four, mainly due to lymph node involvement, but it wasn't distant. And the important part was my lymph nodes didn't have any disencapsulation. Everything was still had integrity. So they stripped out all the lymph nodes. So there weren't any left. So I decided to not do chemo. I decided to just do radiation. For radiation, you get two choices. IMRT, which is intensity modulated radiation treatment or proton therapy. Proton therapy is only done at the big centers, MD Anderson and things like that, because it requires a room that's three stories tall, (laughs) 50 yards wide in order to put the machine in. Because when you go in and have a proton, it's just a little bed with a little wheel that goes around. But in back of that wall, there's this humongous machine. So it's not everywhere. I chose to do IMRT because um, I needed to work. I needed to keep my practice going. I did my surgery And uh, I just did it on ibuprofen and Tylenol, and I was back to work in six days. That's what I was going to ask. So one week off, and then you're back at it. So then they let you heal for about four weeks, and then you do radiation. Radiation, at this point in time, since the tumor is typecast as HPV Mm -hmm. oriented, specifically for us guys, it's HPV-16. And it is an epidemic right now. Right. And the curve is going to keep going up until we get to a generation that's been taking the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. You are infected with the disease back when your teens or your 20s or your 30s, you're sexually active. You take on the disease. You don't know you have it. 90% of people expel it. Another 10%, the virus lingers around, goes around through the body, and it finds stratified squamous epithelium cells, particularly the basal cells that it enters into, and it denatures the DNA and injects itself into the DNA. Now, usually our immune system would handle this by 
recognizing a cell that doesn't have good DNA, mm -hmm. and there'd be apoptosis. Our immune system would destroy it. But the HPV virus actually creates two proteins, E6 and E7, which stop those natural immune processes from destroying the cancer cell. Hmm. So the HPV infection happens 40, 50 years ago. It lodges in those basal cells. All of a sudden, everything's complete, and it shows up in your 50s, your 60s, or your 70s. Yeah. For us guys, usually throat cancer, 90% of throat cancers are guys. The other 10% are women. However, the female gender does not get to escape because they have 100% of cervical cancers are caused by HPV. 90% of anal cancers and rectal cancers are caused by HPV. So therefore, part of my address to my parents when I see them at checkups and things is you got to have your kids get the HPV vaccine. It is a no-brainer. It is anti-cancer vaccine. It is not a reflection on your parenting skills that you're guarding your child from a sexually transmitted disease. Right. You need to guard your child against cancer, and their sexual lives will happen whenever they happen. So the best time to get the cancer vaccine is at 11 and 12. So if it's identified as HPV, all of a sudden your radiation treatment's brought down about 10 grays. So you only receive about 60 grays instead of 70 grays. So you go in every day, Monday through Friday, for six weeks. You lay on a table. You're nailed under this mask that keeps you completely still as the thing goes around and fries you for about four minutes. Its basic objective is to eliminate all the stratified squamous epithelial cells that could contain these denatured DNA uh, strands. While you're in the four minutes of radiation therapy, do you feel anything? You know, every once in a while, I kind of felt a tingle, but for the most part, no, I think it was my imagination. And initially I was all about watching everything. And after about the second week, I thought, oh my God, I can't be watching this twilight zone, this nightmare. And I got to take my mind to a different place. So I'd go in there and I'd, I'd have some music in my head and I'd just go there and spend the four minutes. But the amount of things that happened between the soft palate and the epiglottis become increasingly and extremely recognizable when you don't have them. You have mucositis, your tissue is burned down to the basal layer wow. in this six inches. You have nerve damage. I hear one out of five throat cancer patients aren't able to speak at the 10-year mark because of radiation damage to their cranial nerves. I just heard that the other day at a seminar, but it's what you got to do to get healthy. And as dentists, as you mentioned, Dennis, my voice is coming back. It's a little stronger. For the most part, I have 15% of my saliva that I used to have. So I have to do things to get through. And part of that is I got to keep my mouth moist. So right. you've maybe seen me sipping water, maybe a little bit more than Dennis. 
At night, I spray CTX2 from Carrie's Free. It's a xylitol spray, you know, spray that in my mouth, get it moist, and then I tape my mouth shut with 3M sensitive skin tape. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this because you might have patients who have xerostomia, who have cancer treatment, things like that, that you can use this on and give them this information because it's kept me from having a lot of caries. I haven't mm-hmm. had any, you know, it's kept my mucosa as well as it could be kept, things of that nature. So once you become known as a cancer survivor, I get a lot of calls from other people who's husband, whose father, whose uncle, whose cousin, whose brother, whose sister has now been right. infected. Yeah. And I can tell you, it's it's all the way. My youngest person has been 28 years old wow. that I've mentored through treatment. So it's on the rise. It's going to be on the rise for another 20 years mm-hmm. with all of our 50s, 60s, and 70-year-old patients. I tell my male patients of that age, I said, when you're showering, make note of your neck. Always check it out. Anything feels strange, you give me a call. Let me know. The thing is, folks, it's not just a little swollen lymph node, like from an allergy or something. When it pops, it's almost like half of a ping pong ball. I mean, it's sticking out the side of your neck. And most people who are diagnosed go back on pictures that were taken on them prior to finding it. And they're walking around with a big ball on their neck, but it's never noticed. They just never noticed. And so it's usually the jugulodigastric node, which is just under the angle of the mandible or the subparotid node. Those are the two main ones that are going to get swollen first. And so it does not take very long at all for you to finish your oral exam, do a tongue exam, I say, may I, you know, if you don't mind, Mary, I'm going to check your lymph nodes now. And my patients are so pleased. Of course, they saw me go through hell. But they're so pleased that I'm doing a lymph node exam on them. And it takes all of about 30, 40 seconds to start at the occipital area, go post-auricular, pre-auricular, down the anterior border of the SCM, back on the posterior border of the SCM, come along the mandibular border, and uh, you're all done. takes about 40, 45 seconds. Have we found people? Yes. Have I taught lymph node exams to people and they've told me they've found patients in their practice? The answer is yes, including John Coy's. When we did the lecture up there, Scott Edson and I, Scott's a cancer survivor, faculty member down in North Carolina. We did the talk at the Coy Center. After that talk, there were a dozen people diagnosed shortly after the symposium. Mm. So do your lymph node exams on yourselves, on your family, on your patients. And yes, you can get through it. I'm getting better every day. I always, uh, all, our, all our hygiene patients, new patients, we do our oral cancer exams, we do, we check thyroid, we check lymph nodes, but I think I need to just pay more attention. I just need to be more, I'm doing it, but I need to be more conscious while I'm doing it. Cause I, you know, I'll go through and I'll check, I'm feeling for anything significant, but I think I have to just maybe slow it down a little bit and just yeah. be a little bit more conscious. You know, as I say, you're 
you're not checking for lymph nodes that are slightly swollen due to an allergy or something. You're, you're looking for something that's pretty substantial. And yeah. It's going to be right here. And you can almost diagnose that at hello. So, mm. you know. We had several dentists that. in the Chicago area in, in your age range about the same time that you, you had yours and slightly before, but yeah. three dentists that um, had the same diagnosis and they're recovering and they're still going on. But yeah, it's an epidemic without question. It's an epidemic. And I think you have some really sound advice and I, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing. It's, um, you got it. I can appreciate that this is still emotionally, um, still a struggle and still a yeah. you know a journey. You know, I get that. You know, it hits you sometimes, and it doesn't hit you other times. So yeah. Well, my friend, you look great. Yeah. I feel blessed to have uh, people like you in my life that uh, get to share their journeys and their stories from everything from starting out as a little farmer's kid. You know, and and I, I think that's so important, Mike. I think that for our listeners and for all of us, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're kids of parents and some, most of the people that I've talked to, Mike, their, their family were not dentists. They didn't have anything to do with dentistry and Newton fall crazy enough. His dad is a dentist, but Newton wasn't even going to go into dentistry. He was going to go into teaching and sort of fell into dentistry. And where would we be without people like Newton fall and, you know, all the people in the Michael Sussmans and all that. So for, for those who are out there listening, you know, wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are, you're on your journey and enjoy I've always it. been, enjoy it. Right. And it is hard, right? It is hard when you're when you're, when you're dealing with the real, the realities of life and stuff, but um, I've always been an advocate for continued education at a high level. So local meetings are great and important and they serve a purpose, but to be able to serve our patients at a higher level, at the highest level, we need to really dedicate ourselves to learning the, uh, the dentistry with people like Coyce or through Spear, Dawson, Pinky, what have you. So Mike, can't, can't thank you enough, my friend. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. And for all our Dental Online listeners, yours for better dental health. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley. Bye, Dennis. Bye, everybody. Dental Online trainers, during my conversation with Mike, I mentioned that he was the leader for the first accreditation group that I was part of. I will tell you his leadership and his compassion for those who had submitted their cases was truly inspirational. And it really carries forward with me today. So when I'm mentoring dentists, the way that Mike spoke about these dentists who we did not see, we did not meet. These were anonymous cases that were put in. He was just so compassionate and so concerned about these dentists. And if the cases weren't successful, how he was going to break the news to them and help them along their journey. Truly inspirational. So I hope that you enjoyed hanging out with me and Mike as much as I did. And truly that you take away his message of continuing to screen all your patients for oral cancers. Now, look, if you like our ShareCast, I'd really appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and give us one of those coveted five-star ratings. We all know what that's like, right? We have dental practices, so feel free. Give us one of those five-star ratings. We would really appreciate it. Now, as a reminder, DOT has so many other great opportunities from our Wine and Unwind. Those are our monthly webinars where we engage real-time with our viewers as we bring in leaders throughout the dental industry. We have our monthly study club, our coffee and donut study club. These are mentoring sessions where you bring your cases and we share with each other. And it's a traditional study club format where everyone's open to sharing their cases and help everyone get better. We have our live virtual workshops four times a year, and we have our blogs. And of course, we have our endless selection of hands-on pre-recorded technique courses to help you improve the quality of the dentistry you're able to provide for your patients. So look, check us out at dothandson.com. And thanks for joining us. And as always, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb. Mm-hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to the Sharecast. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe to our Sharecast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're loving the Sharecast, share it with your colleagues. And please rate it and leave us a review. Also, if you want access to fantastic clinical, managerial, and leadership tips to help you in your practice of dentistry, check us out at dothandson.com or find me on Instagram at HartleyDDS. This episode was created with special help from Claire O'Neill. It was edited by Ashley Dixon Ellison and with original music by Chris Peterson. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley, yours for better dentistry.